0: Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to a wonderful week of The Power of the Parsha. We are now going to be talking about Parsha's Pinchas, The Power of Parsha's Pinchas. How many P's can we get? The Phenomenal Power of Parsha's Pinchas. See, it's all P's, but one sounds with an F of P-H, so it doesn't have the same impact. Okay, so we are going to do now The Phenomenal Power of the Parsha of Pinchas. And I want to thank you all for coming out here. For those who are on Zoom, I thank you for being on Zoom, and I thank you even more if you've got your camera on. Those who put on their cameras will inherit the earth. That's exactly a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, no, sorry. It was the meek will inherit the earth. Those who put on their cameras while on Zoom, we give special thank you to, so we know there are real human beings out there. I also want to thank all the people who are watching this afterwards, whether it be on torrentytime.com, which is an, or, yeah, It's an app. It's a website available, Apple Play, your Google uh, Play Store, anywhere you get your uh, podcasts, whatever it is. That is an amazing outlet for downloading hundreds of thousands of hours of Torah content. It is also available on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Google Play uh, Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, under the name Burnham on the Parsha. I also want to thank the amazing staff of the ship at the Hodan Partners Detroit for enabling this to happen. And now let's get into this. Before we get into this, I want to tell you about a trip that I had many years ago um, to the city of Kovna. Kovna is a city in Lithuania. In English, it's spelled Kaunas. K a u n a s. The Kovna ghetto was a uh, one of the one of the saddest one of the saddest uh, ghettos. Lithuania, by the way, of all the countries in Europe, lost the highest percentage of its Jews. Okay, so now the, the by far the greatest number of overall Jews that died were in Poland. Oh, can a water, please? Um, the greatest number of Jews that died were in Poland. Close to 3 million Jews died in Poland. That was 90% of the Jews in Poland. There was about 3.3 million Jews in Poland prior to the war. And unfortunately, during the war, about 3 million of them were killed. Because Poland was the first country that they invaded. And they were taken by big surprise. That being said, in Lithuania, 97% of the Jews in Lithuania were killed. The Kovno Ghetto... It was a very very famous ghetto uh, because of it. It, it's, it was one of the largest uh, centers of Judaism in Lithuania, and unfortunately, in it there was a very famous rabbi named Rabbi Al-Khanan Wasserman. Right now, we're in the middle of the three weeks. It's a sad time of the year in between uh, Shavas or Batamos, the seventeenth of Tammuz, and Tishimov. So, we'll, you know, we'll tell over this this really really sad but also uh, in, in in a way encouraging story, and I'll explain to you why. Reb Lachanan Wasserman was actually in America when the war broke out. He was raising funds for his yeshiva. The yeshiva was called Baranovich. And he was raising funds, and he went back into Europe. And people said to him, you're going back into the lion's den. He said, my flock is there. I need to be there with them. My students are there, right? Yes, I may be going back into the lion's den, but if I'm, I, I, my flock is there. My students are there. And he went back, and they put them into uh, the ghetto, in, in the covenant ghetto. And then eventually his yeshiva was taken out. The, the, the Nazis had problems with everybody who was Jewish, but specifically they had they always had it out for what they call the Talmud letter, which means the people who learn Talmud. They understood that the power of the Jewish people is through our Torah, what makes us unique. It's not that we're smarter than anybody else. I mean, there may be many great nations in this world that are very, very smart. We're not smarter than anybody else. It's our relationship to God and the Torah, which is his, Manifestation in the world that makes us unique. And the Nazis understood this. And that's why, when they came to towns, often the first person they would seek out to beat and humiliate would be the rabbi. And they had a particular virulence and violence reserved for those horrific yeshiva students, the Talmud letter. And they would go apoplectic when they would see yeshiva students. They took all the people from the yeshiva, the the Baranova yeshiva, and eventually they brought them all to this place called the Ninth Fort. You can still go there, I went there on this trip. The Ninth Fort, which is just outside of the city limits, and they shot and killed the
1: entire entire yeshiva. Now, before they went, hold on a second. There was an eyewitness account who was there for Rabbi
0: Wasserman's last speech to his students that was given right before they were marched out to the ninth board. At this point, there was no doubt where they were going. There was no doubt on their future. And Rabbi Wasserman, as you can imagine, is standing there, remember, he came back into this. He came back into Lithuania knowing what was going on, but he said he needed to be there for his students. And his last and final speech to his students was where he told them, He said, we are about to go be a karban. We are about to go be a sacrifice for our people. And the law in the Chumash, the law that we learn in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, and all the the Gemaras, and the halacha that deals with it is that a a sacrifice is only a perfect sacrifice if it's committed with absolute, entire, proper intentionality the whole way through. If I'm bringing a, a, a karban chatas, a sin offering, in the middle of my, for one part of the service, I started thinking about it. Maybe I'll make this into a different offering or whatever it is. Then it's no longer kosher. And he basically told his students, he said, they knew where they were going. He said, but just maintain that presence of mind. Maintain that thought that you will be an Ola Tamima, that you will be an, an offering up to God of purity. And don't let go of that thought, even for a little bit of the process and the value and the contribution of what you'll be giving to the Rabonu Shalom. I mean, we're talking about there's no greater sacrifice than this. Not only that a person dies, but that a person dies with a mindset of, I'm dying because I'm God's child in this world. I'm dying because I represent godliness in this world. And I accept it with love. There's no greater way to go out. And the entire yeshiva marched with their heads held high and they went to their deaths. And like, it's, it's so sad, but it's so empowering that there are human beings who are like this in this world. The Nazis were the animals, they were the animals. The Jews were the most rarefied princes and nobility. People think, oh, look who won that one, right? They went like sheep to the slaughter. They had no choice if they tried to resist Their entire families would have been killed immediately. They knew that. But they they went with such dignity. With such presence of mind. And to have a rabbi stand in front of the crowd and talk to them as his own children. And encourage them to be able to maintain that presence of mind. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. And the fact that they all went through with it. There was no heresy at the end. There was no yelling and screaming. There was a beautiful, beautiful recognition of the sacrifice they were doing because they stood for God in the world for no other reason. And that's what anti-Semitism, by the way, is. Let's recognize anti-Semitism is not about Israel. It's not about the Jews' financial power. It's not about the Jews' control of the media. It's it's nothing. It's, It's about we represent God in the world. And because of that, people who want to lash out at God They can't, because God is invisible, they lash out at us, just so we should understand what anti-Semitism is. Okay, now, and he himself was killed, or was killed himself, along with his students. And again, he had gone back into this, eyes wide open. Today, there is an amazing Jewish organization in Kovna. (laughs) In that place, there is a rabbi who moved from Israel. His name is Rabbi Moshe Scheinfeld. And he moved with his family because there are a lot of students from Israel who go to medical school in Kovna. For whatever reason, I don't know why, there's there's a medical school there. And I don't know how it became sort of like a bridge But there are a lot of Israeli students who go to medical school in Kovna, and now they've started going to Kovna for other schools as well. Of course, Israel is a very small country. It only has a very limited amount of schools. There are a huge amount of people who want to become very high-level professionals in Israel. Israel does not have enough medical schools for all the people who want to go to medical school in Israel, nowhere near. America doesn't either, by the way. America does not not have enough medical schools. and, and because of that, a lot of them are, end up going out to other places in the world. And I guess Kovna has become a place where it's known you could have a good life as an Israeli medical school, school student, but there was nothing Jewish there. So this young man, Rev Moshe Scheinfeld, went out with his family and he, they, they took out a place. There's a massive square in the middle of Kovna, massive open square and it's stuck in the middle of the square in this like ginormous church. It's not like a Western European, like a like a French type of uh, cathedral style, right? The cathedral is a very unique sort of architectural style. This is a little bit more Eastern European, so it's a, li- a little different of a style. It's more like just like this massive monolithic soaring church. And it's got like this commanding plaza all around it with nothing in it. So it's got like stores and like buildings all around the plaza. And then in the middle of this plaza is this massive, ginormous church, but in the shadow of the church, one of those little storefronts is rented out by an organization that and they just actually had a fundraiser. I just was I donated to them. I was like, wow, they are still around. I hadn't seen them in years. I hadn't seen them maybe five, seven, eight years. But Rav Moshe Sheinfeld and his family moved out and opened up a club for Israeli students. And what do they do? They do everything for these students. I mean, the students, when they did the fundraiser, they sent sent out a video. All these students are saying, this is our home away from home. They serve Shabbos meals, and they have classes, and they have study homework hour there. Like They really try to, we're not just here to teach Judaism. We're here to be your home away from home. And they have literally, they have all kinds of study sessions and all kinds of things helping them with their classes, academics, with their Jewish identity. And there are so many Israelis, it's shocking, but we think everyone who's in Israel, Israel's a Jewish state, they must know so much. Not everyone knows so much. There are many Israelis who really are very, very Jewish illiterate. And they come to this place in Kavna, and it's warm and it's welcoming. And Rav Moshe Scheinfeld and his wife and his beautiful family, such incredibly special people, they are there providing Judaism for these Israeli students by the hundreds. When I came to Kavna, they asked me to speak. I happened to speak Hebrew. And uh, so they asked me, they said, like, we don't get visiting rabbis often. Can you speak for our students? So I said, gladly. Now, the funny thing is I lived in Israel for four years. This is going back from 1990 to 94, okay? We're talking a long, long time ago, I lived in Israel, right? And I think of my family, I believe I was the quickest to learn the language. But then I moved out, I moved out in 94. I have not lived in Israel now in 27 years, right? It's a very, very long time. I still love speaking Hebrew. I love the language. I, I, when I have the opportunity to, people, to speak to people in Hebrew, I usually do. Like I'll speak to my sister in Hebrew. She's she's American. But she lived in Israel for more years than I did. Uh, my brother-in-law. I'll speak to anybody I can in Hebrew. They often will respond to me in English. But I'm okay with that. I need to keep my Hebrew strong. I feel very... I, I love the language. Lashon HaKodesh in Hebrew. I love the language. I want to maintain my ability to do it. And just like a, you know, a squirrel will like gnaw the electric wires to keep his teeth sharp. I got to keep my Hebrew sharp. So I got to talk in Hebrew to whoever, whoever will talk to me in Hebrew. So I figured I still got my Hebrew and often people will come to the house and say, hey, how do you speak such a good Hebrew? You have no accent. And the answer is mostly because I've really kept, I've maintained um, my ability to speak Hebrew because I'm really focused on trying to speak Hebrew to whoever I can. I had in Hebrew for many years. But that's for, like, everyday Hebrew, like, you know, like, it's like, where do we get the shawarma? You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, I can get you, like, no. <laughs> so it's like, when it's day to day, like, you know, getting to a cab or going from here to there or talking about, like, where you went recently, that's fine. But when I get up in front of, like, a crowd of about 100 medical school students who are highly intelligent highly technical people, and I'm giving them a class about something that I actually have, Baruch shem a lot of technical knowledge about. I just don't have the Hebrew. It was it was such a, it was a, as they call it in Hebrew, it was a fashla. It was a little bit of a fiasco. It was very hard for me. I realized, like, I have day-to-day Hebrew. I don't have the ability to use any kind of technical terms. I'm just not there. But anyway, he was incredibly, incredibly kind. And I don't know when, about a little while after I left, he, Rabbi Moshe Scheinfeld, printed a sefer on the chumash. And he sent me a copy, this is what it looks like. And I'm gonna, today's thoughts are gonna be thoughts that are in the safer that Rabbi Moshe Scheinfeld who lives in Kovna still today is still doing the Jewish club seven years later and is still helping hundreds and hundreds of Israeli students who are in Kovna which used to have such a rich Jewish tradition and had amazing Jewish yeshivas and was one of the lights of the world Jewishly and it had been fully extinguished under the Nazis and then it was fully further extinguished for 70 years under the Iron Curtain. And now it's re-flourishing again with Torah thanks to Rabbi Moshe Scheinfeld and his supporters and this is—he sent me a little safer. He wrote, "Ha Rav Levi, Hayakar," which means, "Dear Rabbi Levi, Todag Dola Al Arab Nifla." Thank you so much for a wonderful evening. Bemerkazah Yehudi beKovnat Lita in the Jewish Center in Kovnat Lita. To Menashe Mayim. You should be blessed from heaven. With Hashem Hashem You should continue to, to, to honor Hashem in this world with your unique talents. Moshe Sheinfeld. This came from. Er Tuvshin Ayin Zion. This came well. We are, we are right now two months later. It was exactly like five, six years ago, five, four years ago. Okay, come. So here's the idea. The idea we're going to share today on Parshas Pinchas comes from him. That, that's just the, the intro. And now we get to the real Parsha. Here we
1: go. All right. I, I know you needed to hear that story. It just provides context, right? Okay. Ah. They tell a story about two
0: Israelis who were uh, part of one of the most intense combat units in the Israeli army. And after they get out of the combat, uh, their army time, as you well know, Israelis travel the world. That's, uh, that, that is what they do, right? That's like, they're some of the most traveled people. No matter, Barak Hashem, I've had the honor of traveling to many, many, many places in the world. And wherever I go, some places have Chabad, Some places don't. I I went to Iceland. They didn't have Chabad when I was there, believe it or not. Now I think there is a Chabad of Iceland. Believe it or not, there's like one place in the world I traveled that did not have Chabad. um, But they had Israeli tourists. So when I was in Iceland, I didn't have any Chabad, but I had Israeli tourists. Now, again, now I believe there is a Chabad in Iceland. I don't know if it's full-time, maybe part-time, but I know there's a Chabad in Iceland. In any case, but there were Israelis in Iceland when I was there. No matter where you go in the world, you hear people speaking Hebrew. So these two guys, they're post army, they go on their tour of the world. And they're out in the far east somewhere, in some village, you know, out in the middle of Thailand. And there's this massive, <laughs> there we go. Hi, I just put up on the thing. Uh, if you want to find the Chabad right now, please follow the link that I just sent after the class. Okay, so um, they're in the middle of Thailand somewhere, and there's this big, big, gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful mountain. And they decide they wanna scale it, they wanna climb it. Now it's really, it's, it's, it's a tough mountain to climb, and, and, but they're like, listen, we just did three years in the most intense um, you know, combat units in, in Israel. We could handle this. As a matter of fact, in America, one of the most famous challenging hikes in America is called Angel's Landing. It's a beautiful, beautiful hike in Zion National Park. It is it's incredible. And it's one of the most famous, rigorous, difficult hikes in the United States of America. And there are certain parts of this hike where you're on it. And to the right and to the left, there's cliffs that are like over a thousand feet. So if you tumble, you you don't you know, you you go back in a body bag. And the truth is, like every year, there's like almost every year you see in the news. Another person died in Angels Landing. It's 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 legit. Like when you go there, there's a sign that says this amount of people have died since this year. Be careful. Like this is nature. This is wild. This is real. If you can't handle this, don't be here. Right. So I was climbing up Angels Landing. And I'm almost at the end. And I see this guy charging up, it's a a steep pathway, like leading up on this, because like basically Angel's Landing is like a landing, there's like a river that goes like a horseshoe type of river, and then the Angel's Landing is like right in the middle, there's this massive canyon wall, and on top of that is Angel's Landing, and there's like a a thin spine that you're climbing up to get up to the top. And this is the thin spine that you're climbing up to get to the top is already about Three miles, four miles in with intense elevates, elevation changes. It's it's a tough, it's a very tough hike to get there. So we're already almost at the top. So we're maybe, maybe I don't know, like maybe a, a 2,000 yards from the t- total end of the Angel's Landing. And we're all huffing and puffing and it's a hot day outside and we're sweating and all that. And we see this guy, he's running up the mountain. When I say running, I mean literally like running up the mountain. He's barefoot, okay? He's barefoot, Okay. He's got a cigarette dangling out of his mouth while he, he's running up the mountain barefoot. Everyone's climbing. It's like one of the most famous, rigorous climbs in America. This guy is running up the mountain barefoot smoking a cigarette. Um, about a, a little few minutes behind him was his girlfriend. And I said to her, like, like, what's that guy's You And I, I, we were, whatever, like, I could tell this was his girlfriend because he was tattooed on everywhere except for, you know, one, arm, one leg and she was tattooed on one leg and nowhere else. So like, it was an exact perfect match. So I said, like, what's his deal? She said, yeah, he's a U.S. Ranger. He's from the Rangers, you know, the, you know, the America. I think that's one of the most intense units in the, in the U.S. Army, like in the Navy SEALs you have the U.S. Rangers so he was he's an army ranger he can handle it he can climb he can jump up angel's landing like like a goat so these israeli guys are like look we're from one of the most intense combat units we're going to climb this mountain no problem so they get all the right gear they get it's a couple day climb they get the right gear in the town there's logistics they work it all out and they set out and they're climbing this massive mountain the first day they camp midway through the second day they camp at mid base whatever by now you're almost at the top the air is starting to get thinner by the third day, they climb all the way to the top and they get to the top. And of course, like all Israelis, they put a little Israeli flag and a bag of bamba. I don't know if you guys know about this custom, but one of the customs of Israelis, when they get to places in the world that are pretty like far out, they just they leave a little bit of bamba behind. It's like a sign like, hey, Israelis, were here. I love it. I, I, you got you to love Israelis. Now, like, there's nothing more brilliant than just leaving a bag of bamba, you know. Anyway, so they pin their little bag of bamba with the Israeli flag and they put it in the ground. And suddenly, they see a little kid there. And a little scrawny little kid. <laughs> and they, they said to him, hey, kid, what are you doing here? He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what are you doing? It took us three days to get here. We're like intense combat soldiers. We finally get up to the top of the mountain, and you're just hanging out over here? He's like, yeah, I, I, I grew up here. I was born in a little village right here at the top of the peak over here. And uh, I grew up here. The idea is that there are places that people have to climb their whole lives to get there. And there are people who are born at that level. Everyone in life is born at a different place. And in general, the most important thing to remember is that you and your life are not going to be judged by where you ended up. You're going to be judged on the delta between where you were born and where you got to. So that's an important message that's very, very, very important. right? So lefum tzara agra, the reward, goes according to the effort. For the three Israelis, sorry, the two Israelis who climbed up three days up the mountain, and they're huffing and puffing, and they get up there, they feel like kings. That reward, they get tremendous, the value of getting up there. Oh, they feel that amazingness. We we climbed the mountain. This guy was born there. He never climbed the mountain, perhaps, his entire life. Maybe he never went down
1: and back up, right? He's born adjusted to the thin air up there. That's how he's born. That's his whole life.
0: So in life in general, rule number one is that we don't get judged by where we are when we die. We get judged by how much effort it took us throughout our life to get there. Again, we don't get judged by where we are when we die. We get judged by how much effort it took us to get to where we got to. And if we put in our best efforts and we are... At a mountaintop, and at the end of our life, we get to 2,000 feet above sea level. But we were born at sea level, that can be an incredible, incredible climb. But if we were born at 11,000 feet and we only got up to 11,500, or maybe we even fell back and we die at 9,000 feet, then that's going to be held against us. So it's not about where you are. It's about how much effort it took you to get here and how much effort you're putting in every day to maintain and climb
1: higher. There is a way that we can ensure that our offspring,
0: our children, our grandchildren are the kind of people who are maybe born at the top of the mountain. You know, it's a very big desire. People want to leave wealth and legacy to their children. Right? They want their children to be successful. I don't want my children to have to struggle to put food on the table. I don't want my children to have to struggle to get through college. I've spoken about it earlier this week. My daughter, my oldest daughter, just started college. Just started college. Whole new, whole new, uh, a whole new uh, you know, place in my life. Now she is, she's working through this amazing organization called TTI, uh, Teaching and Training Institute. It's like one of these like sort of Jewish-based colleges. Um, and God willing, she'll hopefully be able to get her bachelor's within like a year and a half after her, you know, graduating from high school. But she started right now. She's in the middle of doing algebra. I think her next course is going to be uh, Jewish foods. <laughs> and I wanted, I'm like, there's there's, a, there's credits for that course. Yes, there are credits for that course. The history of Jewish foods. All right, that's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like, listen, out there there are people getting degrees like in interpretive dance, you know what I'm saying? We're like doing away with all standards of testing and all that because, you know, so like, all right, let my daughter get her bachelor's taking, a, you know, a few courses in the history of Jewish foods and, and you know, maybe like uh, pronu- various pronunciations of the, of the letter ches in uh, Jewish tradition throughout the world. you got the Yemenite ches and the Ashkenazic ches and the Sephardic Hit, and I don't, whatever I don't know, whatever. I, I, for me, it's important that she gets a degree. And by the way, I, I, I actually, it's an interesting experience. I, I really kind of, I want her, I'm pushing her to like, go work it out yourself. Speak to your own academic advisor. Do, do your college, do, do your thing. But obviously we want, we want our kids to have a certain level of comfort, a certain level of success, a certain level of not facing challenges, right? While we don't want our kids to be crippled and not able to even mount the, the, and overcome the most simplest of challenges, that, that you do have. Unfortunately, our parents today, who are, will advocate? I was a teacher in it for a little while in a very expensive private school, a private you know Jewish school, where parents were paying twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year. And you have these parents who are calling you, "How dare you give my child a see?" I'm like, "Your kid never showed up to work, to class. That your hands in work three days late. The work is the 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 the." the, the first draft of a third grader, you know what I'm saying? And you're asking me, how come I gave your kid a C? You know why I gave your kid a C? Because I have tremendous compassion. C is for compassion. Your kid <laughs> deserved you know, an F for flunking and I gave him a C for compassion. But you you have that and that's not gonna help anybody. So we need our children to go through their own struggles but we also don't want our children to have to go, we want our children to, be, to grow up in a community where they're not gonna face violent crime. We want our kids to grow up in a community where they're not going to face god forbid all kinds of you know, you know horrific violence or trauma right we 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 don't want that we want to give our kids the best chance we can so while on one hand, again, there are people who are born at 11,000 feet, and there are people who are born at 2,000, and there are people who are born at the Dead Sea, negative 300, 400, you know what I'm saying? like You work with people, sometimes you meet with people, unfortunately, in, 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 in life who were born at negative 400 into highly dysfunctional situations, abusive and dysfunctional situations. So everyone is born at different places, but you obviously want your family to be born
1: into the best place possible. This week's partial talks a little bit about that. Let's see. In this week's parsha, we talk about Pinchas. Pinchas, in last week's parsha, we were introduced to. He was
0: the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron, Akoim. And last week in the parsha, he speared, and he there was there was a there was a terrible, terrible sin being perpetrated, a terrible act of immorality and infidelity and idolatry being perpetrated by the leader of one of the tribes, like one of the greatest Jews alive and was doing it in full view in front of Moshe and mocking the Torah and mocking Judaism and mocking everything we believe in. And everyone was standing silent. They just didn't know what to do. Unfortunately, as I'm sure you can relate to, a lot of times when society starts doing crazy things, like things that are just crazy, you can't believe your own eyes, but you're also like, you're afraid to speak up. Cause like, I don't know, this like really important person is doing it and he's saying it and he's saying that it it's okay. And I don't know, like we become cowed into silence. And Pinchas was the one who stood up and stopped this salacious and uh, tra- tra- uh, tragic act that was being committed by the leader of the tribe of Shimon. And this week's Parsha is where we see the response of God. Last week was where we saw what he did. There was a plague. 24,000 Jews died because this, this acts of immorality and idolatry and infidelity was spreading throughout the Jewish camp. It was Bilam's attempt to get the Jews... Killed, even though he himself couldn't curse them. He said, You can get them by convincing them, by by enticing and seducing them to be immoral. And now we see Hashem's response. (laughs) Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, the son of Elijah, the son of Aaron, the high priest. He pulled back my anger from the Jewish people, the when he was zealous on my behalf. He took the actions that I would have had to take. I would have had to stop them from doing this, but he stopped them from doing this. He acted on my behalf. And I did not wipe out the Jewish people in my anger. The acts they were doing were so horrific that if I had to start set in, I would have come back with a, a more uh, comprehensive plague. And in this plague, still twenty four thousand people died, which is the most of any. By, by the golden calf, only three thousand people died. After the sin of the spies, 14,000 people died. This is the greatest number of Jews dying at any point in their time in the desert. It happened right here. And he was the one who stopped that. Okay? He was the one who stopped that. So Hashem says, he acted on my behalf. Lachain, therefore, emor, say, Hinini no lo is brisi shalom. I will give him my bris, my, my bris of peace, my covenant of peace. Which means what? The sages explain that although he was from Aaron's grandchildren, he was not a Kohen. He was not a priest. Why not? Because the only people who were priests were the people who were born uh, after. So Aaron and his sons were made into Kohanim by God in a special ceremony. Anyone who was born subsequent to that was part of the Kohanic lineage. But Pinchas was that very rare generation, that sort of donut hole generation. He was not anointed to be a priest along with his grandfather, Aaron, and his father, Elazar, and his uncles, Isamar, Nadav, and view. He was not there for that process, but he was already born, so he was not born subsequent to them. So he would have ironically been a grandchild. He would have been a trivia question. Who is a a descendant of Aaron but not a Kohen? And the answer would have been Pinchas, right? But the answer is not Pinchas because he earned his Kohanic status through this act. Hashem says, "I will give him the Kohanic status, but not only that." The, Haysa lo, acharav, olam. Hashem says, "Not only am I giving it to him, I'm giving it to all of his children after him as a bris k'unas olam, a covenant of the Kohan, the, the Kohuna, forever." He has through this action, he has given his children and his grandchildren and his great grandchildren and his great 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 grandchildren the Kohanic powers because of what he did. There are things that we can do that enable our children to be born at 5,000 feet above sea level. And of course, this explains why. It tells us who his grandfather is. It's Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron haKohen. He was the grandson of Aaron. Now that the Gemara tells us that they started making fun of Pinchas. When he killed the Midianite princess and the leader of the tribe of Shimon, when he killed them, people were very angry because the leader of the tribe of Shimon was basically paving the way that all these Jewish people could do whatever they wanted with the Midianite women. His whole point, the leader of of the tribe of Shimon was not only committing an act of horrible infidelity and immorality, he was saying, no, this is fine, Moses, you're so strict. You're always so strict. This is the way we're going to join with other nations. We're going to bring more nations into the fold by physically joining with them and becoming all one. And it's a good thing. If God, you know, if God didn't want me to do this, why would he give me these desires, right? So famous, you know, ridiculous canard number 14, or actually number three. It's probably one of the top ridiculous canards in the world if god didn't want me to do this why did he make it feel so good or taste so good yeah you know why because he wants you to learn self-control but no this leader of the tribe of shimon was going around and, and pushing this canard and people would have followed it so when when pichos kissed them you just killed the guy who was giving us a license to do whatever we want. People were really angry at him. They were talking smack about him. They were saying, oh, look at this guy. His grandfather used to bring offerings to the idols. Who was his grandfather? His, his grandfather was Jethro, right? Moshe married one of Jethro's daughters. You know who else married one of Jethro's daughters? Elazar, son of Aaron. So Jethro was Pinchas's grandfather. Jethro who was also Moses' father-in-law at one point was a Midianite prince, uh, sorry, a a, a prince of Avodah Zara, a a, a priest of Avodah Zara. He was a Kohen Midian. He had been a idol-worshiping Kohen Gadol. He was like a high priest of idol worship for so many years. People are like, oh, look at this guy. He thinks he's so religious now. He's taken out, he's killing people for their infidelity and their idolatry. His grandfather was a a, a high priest of idolatry. The Torah says, no, 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 no. He don't think that he acted based on the genes of the idolatry that was in his family. He was acting based on the genes of Aaron Akoin. Now, Aaron, the high priest, is the most peaceful of men. We say in Pirkei Avos, Aaron be from the students of Aaron, the high priest. Shalom, shalom, The one who loves peace. The one who runs after peace. And la Torah. You love people and you bring them close to Torah. Don't think that when Pinchas killed the bad guys, he was doing it because he still had the coarse genes that he would have inherited from his grandfather's idol-worshiping days. No, no, no. He did this because he inherited the peace-seeking genes of his grandfather, Aaron, because sometimes when you stand up for Torah in a forceful and violent way, you're actually doing peace. When you stop people's wrong ways, you it may look violent, but it could be an act of peace. Let's think about the Germans when they took over the student land and they were taking over parts of Austria and Czechoslovakia. If the world would have stood up and stopped them in their tracks, would that have been an act of violence or an act of peace? When Israel right now is taking out Iranian scientists, well, we don't know. Uh, well, Israel, I mean, a lot of times they later admit it. right? We, we know Israel's blowing up Iranian nuclear facilities. They're trying to take out the nuclear scientists. Is that an act of violence? No, it's an act of peace. Because when when Iran gets a nuclear bomb, they're gonna hold the world hostage. Is that what you want? That the largest sponsor of terror in the world, a country that sends hundreds of billions of dollars to terrorist organizations every year, you want them to have a nuclear bomb? So when you see somebody taking out their nuclear reactors and sometimes even killing their nuclear scientists, and killing the heads of the, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard—that's not acts of violence.
1: That's acts of peace. There are acts of peace that look like violence, or acts of violence that look like peace. So,
0: the the Torah tells us: number one, let's recognize where these genes come from. The whole theme that we're going to see in this week's parsha—the theme again and again and again—is you inherit special things in your genes from your People, the people who came before you, your forebears. It could be you inheriting peace from your grandfather Aaron, and because of that, you take this immediate action and stop the leader of Shimon and the princess of Midian in their tracks. It could be later on, we're going to see again in the same weeks, in the same portion. By the way, that's why it tells you. It, it, it tracks the grandfather. Normally, the Torah just tells you a person in the name of their father. Here, it goes back two generations, but there's actually way more than that. In this same Torah par- par- portion, in this same parsha, later on we're gonna see the daughters of Slavchad stepping up. So, who are the daughters of Slavchad? So, Slavchad
1: was a man who died in the desert. Oh, wait, sorry, that was last week's parsha. Um, well, let's see. No, it's in this week's parsha. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, part it's
0: Bamidbar it's Bamidmar Zion Gimel through Dalit. Okay, so what happens? You have these girls, the Beno Slavkod, Tikravna Beno the daughter of the Slavkod, Ben Khafer, the son of Khafer, Ben Gilla the son of Gilad, Ben Makhir, the son of Machir; Ben Menasha the son of Manasha, Lemishbachos Menasha Ben Yosef to the family of Manasha Ben Yosef. So here we go, we've got the daughters, so you got the girls, okay, there we go, girls are Mahla, Noah, Chagla, Milkan, Tirzah, very important women in their life, and in, in the Torah, they're actually, you know, some of the very, very few women who are all sisters and named out in public, every one of their names is actually named a couple times in the Torah, their full names, okay, so you have the the Slavka daughters, so let's say let's say we're talking about Mahla over here, or Noah, Noah was the daughter of, so we have Noah's generation one. Then her father was Heifer. His grandfather, her grandfather would have been uh, Gilad. Her great-grandfather would have been Machir. Her great-great-great-grandfather would have been Menasha, Her great-great-great-grandfather
1: would have been Yosef. Why is the Torah telling you six generations back? The answer is, Where do these? what, what,
0: what do they come to Moshe for? They came to Moshe saying, our father died and he has no sons. And at this point, the laws of estates and trust were not yet learned fully, okay? So the question was, who gets to inherit his portion in the land of Israel? At that time, the assumption was that only men would inherit the estate and not women. And if there was only girls in the family, then the estate would go back to his uncles, his fathers, right? Meaning if someone dies without any children at all, then their estate goes up to the father and then to the brothers, the uncles and so on and so forth, right? So there, I believe, uh, I'm trying to remember, does it go to brothers? I think it goes first to father, then to brothers and then to the brother, father, father's brothers and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, that's how it goes. So if someone dies childless, if their estate, if their father is still alive, I believe it goes to their father. If their father is not alive. It goes to their father's sons, i.e. his brothers. If he has no brothers, it goes to the father's brothers and so on and so forth. Okay, so they didn't know yet. Can girls inherit? Can they inherit the estate? And they said, we want a piece of the land of Israel. Where did they get this genes from? Where did they get this deep desire to have a piece of the land of Israel? You know where they got it from? Their great, great, great grandfather. Their great, yeah. Great, 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 great grandfather, Yosef. Yosef loved the land of Israel so much that before he died, he made his descendants promise that they would take him out of Israel. He said, I love Israel. Even if I can't be there as I die, I want my body to be brought there. And he was 'ah, Hashbeah, Hashbeah, Yosef. The the very, very ending of Genesis is Joseph making his children promise that they will take his body out of the land of Egypt and bring him up to Israel because he loved Israel so much. Who, by the way, was the one who was in charge of taking him out? It was Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu himself was the one who was involved in getting the bones of Joseph out of Egypt and on their way to Israel. Obviously, he couldn't carry them all the way through because he, he didn't make it into Israel. But Yosef loved the land of Israel so much. Therefore, what? Therefore, his great, great, great grandchildren, the daughters of Tzavchad, Noah, Machla, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza, they wanted to be, get a piece of the land of Israel too because it was in their genes. Because when you make changes in your life and you make the right moves, it trickles down, you can trace your effect six generations later. You're an angry, and as a therapist, by the way, like I'm a therapist also, I don't, I don't actively do a lot of therapy, but one thing you notice incredibly powerfully in therapy is just how multi-generational dysfunction is, right? You see often people with alcoholism or anger problems or control issues, right? And you can just start tracking it back. Okay, then your parents, grandparents, great grandparents, depending on how far the family history goes, but you'll often find as far back as you can go, this dysfunction is going to follow the family. But function also goes down, not just dysfunction. If you teach yourself to be a happy person instead of a cynical person, you know what you give over to your children? Happiness instead of cynicism. And you know what they give over to their children? Happiness instead of cynicism. And maybe five generations later, you'll be able to look back and say, you know, we had this patriarch, my great-great-grandfather. He was just always the most happy, positive person. Today I called somebody up, just a, a random person. I said, whatever, it's like, a, a not, not like nothing, nothing no, no, no big, I just said, how are you doing? Outstanding, how are you? I loved it, I said to him, I love it, thank you. Thank you for answering like that. Thank you for being that kind of human being. When you're the kind of human being, when people ask you how you're doing and you say outstanding, you know what? It trickles down to your children. Very rarely do you have a child whose father was always outstanding and yet you ask them how they're doing, and they're like, oh, no, new day, same old garbage. You don't get
1: that from children or people whose lives are outstanding. People, you ask them how they're doing and they say, I'm having, whoa, what a blessed day today. Those
0: kind of people, it, it goes down multi generational. And that's what this week's Parsha is all about. This week's Parsha is saying to you, Pichas, by acting on behalf of God, he won the bris of Shalom, the, the, the covenant of peace, and the covenant of kahuna of the Kohanic abilities to affect people and inspire people and serve in the temple, he didn't just get it for him. Lo, ulazaro acharov Adolam for him and for his children, forever. Where did he get it from? Pinchos ben Elazar ben Aaron a coin You know where he got that from? He got it from his grandfather Aaron, who loved people and loved peace and recognized that sometimes when you see Horrible, rotten people doing horrible, rotten actions. That's the upon incumbent upon
1: the peace lovers to act forcefully to end it. Because the, the proper response to horror is not quiet, because then the horror just grows.
0: And then we have the same parsha, no Slavka, the daughters of Slavka. Where do they have this love, this deep desire? We want a piece of the land of Israel because their great-great-great-grandfather, Joseph, loved it too. And the Torah tracks it back. But the Graven of Nosloch,
1: Ben-Chefer, ben Gilad, ben Machir, Ben-Menashe, ben Menasha, Ben-Yosef, go all the way back because that's where it goes. We have the ability to have that effect on people. And it's not only just our children, by the way,
0: the amazingness of of, of God, that he has a tracker on all of us, <laughs> kind of like the Chinese Communist Party, which <laughs> just, just turned 100 today, right? And they've got a tracker on all of us, even here in America, right? <laughs> because we've given them so much control over our, I mean, they're, they're, they're everywhere. It's insane. It's insane. Um. If you think it's people like, look, we obviously have to take uh, as many steps as we can to protect our identity, but your identity is so out there, so available to anybody who really, really wants to get to it, unfortunately. But there's like, they're tracking everything and everybody. Hashem is tracking everything and everybody too. And he's able to see what ripple effects you have on your community, what ripple effects you have on the people around you. When you're the kind of person who answers outstanding when people say to you, how are you? And again, you don't have to be a total liar and always just say outstanding, even if you don't feel outstanding. But there's a way to feel outstanding, even when things are bothering you. And especially an outward outstanding, because the reality is, Bar Hashem, guess what? We are all outstanding. You know why? Because you have plenty of food in your kitchen right now. And you have, your house is probably being cooled right now to a Moderate to comfortable level. I don't know what your degrees in your house are right now when I speak to you, but if you're in your house, you're probably I don't know your house 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, somewhere around there. Right? There are people, I don't know if you know this, but Seattle is the number one most unair conditioned house city in America. Portland is the number three most unair-conditioned house in America. That uh, meaning Portland is the, is the city with the third highest number of unair-conditioned houses. These are both cities. In the Pacific Northwest, where it's usually comfortable, there's usually a good breeze, and right now they're 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 broiling. It's like 110 degrees in Portland, right? Baruch Hashem, we right now you're, you're comfortable. Life is outstanding. You may have tzaras, we all have tzaras, but life is outstanding. You're well fed. You're well clothed. You're being taken care of. You don't fear for your life. Life is outstanding. We have troubles too, big ones sometimes, but life is outstanding. When we're the kind of person who's able to push that narrative to the world. It makes a difference. It ripples effects to everybody else in the community. So we, yes, something fascinating also, the Chizkuni mentions something, a very interesting idea. You look at Pirkei Avos, Ethics of Our Fathers. And Ethics of Our Fathers, there's a Mishnah that says,
1: let's see, where is it? Um, hold on. There is a, here we go. The fifth parak, parak hamishi,
0: mishnah gimel. Asara doros minoach v'adavram. There were 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. Okay, the mishnah before that said there was 10 generations from Adam, Adam, to Noah. Here we have, there was 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. That's mishnah gimel, mishnah three. Then we go to Mishnah four. Mishnah four. Asara Nisyonos Nisnasa Avram Avinu. Avram, her father, was tested with 10 tests by Amad Bukulam, and he stood in all of them. Hmm, now, wait a second. Mishnah three, his name was Avraham. Mishnah four, his name is Avraham Avinu, right? Do you notice that little switch over there? Little switcheroo? Yeah. Well, I noticed it too. And guess what? We are not the only ones who uh, noticed it. Sorry, it's not the Shizkuni. It was mentioned by the Chaim Velajin in, uh, in the Ruach Haim. So he points out that in Mishnah Gimel, when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about his lineage, there were 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, we call him Abraham. When we talk about the 10 tests that he withstood, we call him Abraham Avinu. Why? Because it wants to tell you that when you withstand tests, you give that over to your children in your genes. The fact that today, people, Jews, are ready to sacrifice, to go live in Israel, is because Avram sacrificed with Lech Lecha, to go live in Israel. And the, today, Jews are willing to sacrifice. We go through difficulties, and we don't have complaints against God. That's because Avram was given famine after famine and didn't complain against God. So when it comes to telling you his lineage, his name was Avram. That's what his name was. When it comes to telling you about how he overcame challenges, suddenly he becomes Avram Avinu, Avram our father why because he gave that over to his children he gave over that ability to us so we say he's our father it's in my genes right now in my genes i've got a little bit of the avram gene it's an amazing thing today with 23andme with these new uh you know companies that do your genetic testing it's incredible we could take people they, they give they take a little swab of their mouth right and they hand it into the company, the company comes back to you, besides telling you that you're more likely to get high blood pressure and you're probably afraid of, of, of frog legs or whatever it is, You know, they also tell you like you're 98.7% Eastern European Ashkenazic Jewelry or you, you're 13% French you know, Creole and you're whatever it might be. It's an amazing thing, just from a little swab in your mouth. You know where else you can see that in how you act because Avram Avinu is your father. And what do you have in you? You have a little bit of his 10 triumphs. His 10 triumphs over his 10 nisionos that he went through, his 10 challenges that he went
1: through, you've got a little bit of that in you. Interestingly, on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur after the Torah reading of um, Yom Kippur
0: and Menchah, we read the story of Jonah, the story of Jonah and the whale. Now, what's interesting in that story is, is that Jonah, what happens? There's a, a big city called Ninveh, Irab the big, big city of Ninveh. And they are sinning horribly in the eyes of God. And Hashem sends Yonah the prophet to go warn them and tell them: listen, if you guys don't get your act together, in 30 days, this city's gonna fall. Okay? And he goes, he doesn't want to go at first for whatever reason, Hashem ends up setting it up. He gets swallowed by the whale. By the way, there was recently a story, there's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy about this is a true story or not. But there recently was a story where a, a lobster diver was, he claims he was, um, he, he, he was swallowed whole by a humpback whale and then spit out a few, a few uh, minutes later, but he was probably in the whale for about, about a minute and a half or a minute. Anyway, true or not true, I don't know, but it happened like earlier in June. It's a pretty, very, very rare instance. The last time we know for sure it happened was in the book of Jonah. So um, the question is, why does the city of Nineveh get chosen? There are many cities that were doing bad things in the eyes of the Lord. How come specifically Nineveh gets singled out? You're going to get a special messenger from God, a prophet who's going to come and warn you and tell you to repent. Why do they get that? So here's where the chizkuni comes. The chizkuni says something amazing. He says, when was Nineveh built? So if you look in the Torah in Parshas Noach, it says, Minha Aratahi yatsa Ashur from this land came out Ashur by even Es Ninveh Ves ir Kalach. He built Ninveh and Rehobos and Kalach. And Rashi says, What happened? Ashur was a man, and he saw that the people were starting to sin and they were following Nimrod. Nimrod was the really, really bad guy, really, really bad guy who was trying to get everybody to rebel against God and build his big tower to go fight against God. And he saw what was going on. He said, I'm moving my children out of here. When you see that education is failing your children, you gotta move your children out of where the education is failing them. You can't just say, I don't know what to do. I just had a conversation this past week with a father who said the school that his kids going to are starting to teach things that he disagrees with strenuously. And he's literally, literally in the process of considering pulling the kids out and either homeschooling them or moving to a different state because the stuff that they're teaching his kids, he just believes are, is, is wrong and hurtful and damaging. So Asher did that. Asher was a man who lived in the time of Nimrod and Nimrod was gathering all the people together to go rebel against God. And Asher said, I'm out of here. I'm moving. I'm leaving this place. I don't want my children indoctrinated with these horrible ideas. And he moved somewhere else and built a city. Thousands of years later, his people are falling off the path. And Hashem says, let me send somebody to go save them. Because I know that in their genes is repentance. I know that in their genes is avoidance of negative influences. How do I know that it's in their genes? Because their great, 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 great <laughs> grandfather Ashur, thousands of years ago, moved his family
1: out of the path of indoctrination with evil ideas. Isn't that an amazing idea? From all the cities,
0: from all the cities that Hashem decides to send a Jewish prophet to a non-Jewish city and warn them, you're messing up? Who is it? It's Nineveh. Why? Because that was in their genes. Because they great, 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 grandfather sacrificed so that his kids should not have evil infiltrate into them. Every one of us, whether our kids live at home or our kids don't live at home, whether we have children or we don't have children, we are spreading our effects on everybody. This year, one thing it taught us is that there are invisible effects that we can cause to other people. The one lesson we can learn, one there's many lessons we can learn from this whole pandemic. But maybe one thing we can learn is, People are so afraid, right? I'm telling you, it's, it's an amazing thing. You, know, you travel around the country. I've traveled a, you know, a bunch since the pandemic has you know, started. You go to some places and people are just living their normal lives. And you go to some places and people are very, very concerned and there's double masking still going on. So like, there's there definitely different ways people are living. And of course the vaccines have been available widely to anybody in America who wants it. You know, Obviously people have different feelings about that you know, who should get it, what age, you know, what, you know, I'm vaccinated
1: and I'm very happy that I am. Um, I got it pretty much as early as I could. I, I was, so there are people,
0: we, we, we now are aware though, that without me ever touching you, I can spread something hurtful to you. By just being within six feet of you, I might be able to spread something hurtful to you. And you're so afraid of what I might spread to you that you're wearing a mask. And I respect that. If you want to wear a mask because you're afraid of what I might... Recognize that. How about ideas? I could be sitting in a group of people and just spouting my cynicism, my my negativity and my anger. Does that not affect you too? We recognize that there are tiny little particles called viruses. You know how small a virus is, by the way? Compared to a bacteria, just to understand what a virus is, by the way, Viruses are tiny, tiny. They're like less than a thousandth of a bacteria. No, no. If a bacteria, sorry, if a virus was a tennis ball, a bacteria would be, I think, a beach ball. So I don't know exactly the proportion, but viruses are are, are so, 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 so tiny. We're aware that there's, in the spiritual world, the physical world and spiritual world are always made after each other. Just like Hashem created the world where there's genes that go down from generation to generation and we understand how that works and spiritually there are genes too. There are viruses in the air that can affect you spiritually just like there are viruses that are, neg- that are in, in, in the world. We have to make sure. Ashur said the air here in Bavel is dangerous. Nimrod is trying to indoctrinate everybody to go against God. I'm taking my family out of here. When we pass people in the street and we're six feet away from them, if we smile at them and nod and say good morning, we give them chias, we give them light, life. If we look at them, we turn our face away. If when we get into an elevator, we quickly, we uncomfortably look at our phones because we don't want to wish the guy good morning, but maybe I should, you just feel we We just turn away and we go quicker into our phone lest I have to have some human contact with somebody in an elevator. That creates its message too. We're constantly able to have the incredible gift of affecting other people for the good or for the not as good. Let's make sure that first of all, we put our children, give our children and our grandchildren, our great-great-great-great-grandchildren like Yosef's great-great-great-grandchildren. Let's give them the genes that they should start out their lives at 5,000 feet above sea level. They'll have plenty of challenges on their own. Let's start them out as high as we can. And when we pass people in the street, let's make sure to give them, let's be contagious with a virus of happiness, of joy, of smiles, of warmth, of acceptance. Having I called the Kabbalah is It's so bizarre. The mask almost like takes away your ability to smile at people and wave at them. But now that we're taking off the mask and we're going back out, make sure you use your mouth to smile at people. You could smile at people for a year. Now you can. Let's make sure we use that. Let's spread a virus and contagion of happiness and joy and openness and acceptance and love and kindness. And then it will go down to our children, children's children, and our grandchildren will talk about how Zadie used to, he was always so happy. Asked him how he's doing and he would say, outstanding. Anyway, you guys have all been outstanding. You're all amazing. Thank you so much and have a wonderful.